Welcome to another episode of No Small Jobs. I am your host, Paul Nguyen, as always. Um, thanks for joining us again and uh, having listened to another episode. Uh, make sure you check out our previous episodes. They can all be found on Acast or wherever you get good podcasts. There is also a website, nosmalljobspod.com.au, where there are some random musings and reflections to go with each episode. And finally, as with everything these days, there is a social media outlet. At uh, No Small Jobs Pod is the handle on Twitter, Facebook. Facebook and Instagram. So follow us for sneak peeks of new episodes and um, a way to actually spread the love. So today I have Sam. Sam is a video game programmer and semi-professional musician. Hey Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Which love started first, the video games or the music? I think it was probably the video games, but not specifically video games, more just computers and programming and, uh, you know, pulling apart pulling apart things as well and in fact electronics as well as computers so yeah so I started uh, like um, when I was I guess 10 or 8 or so uh, we had an Apple IIe and then actually well actually it was a funny story um, we were coming home from the movies one day and my parents were like oh I've got this great present for you and at the time I was really into Voltron yeah. and I was like oh I'm gonna get Voltron <laughs> and I come in and there's an Apple IIe and I was like oh, I wanted I wanted Voltron you know? <laughs> um, so so we had the Apple IIe only for a short while I think we were borrowing it and we had to give it back and then uh, after that we uh, my dad got this Australian computer it's the only Australian computer called a Microbee mm. and um, it, it was a kit computer and then they uh, so you'd have to put it together yourself but we didn't have that version we had the the later version, which you'd, um, you bought already assembled. And it had a tape because everything ran off cassette tape and um, very simple, to you know, uh, black and white or orange or green and black sort of, you know, two colours. And, um, yeah, it had a bunch of games and it was kind of an odd computer because it, um, it had a lot of stuff that, like the Commodore 64 and the VIC-20 and the Apple, all these sort of machines were out. And uh, they had sort of very specific games like Load Runner, and they were very like very popular games. The Microbee had sort of weird versions of all these games that someone had kind of cloned. <laughs> so I, all my friends were growing up, talking to them now, they ex- they were playing all these kind of classic games, and I was playing like the weird Microbee version of it, like the knockoffs. Yeah, they were kind of knockoffs, but they, they were really good though. They were well because um, they were trying to make enough software to make this game this. Uh, computer um, popular i guess so they so they were fully fledged versions of all these games um so we we had this computer and we were um my brother and i were sort of programming little things in in basic which is kind of a very simple programming language that a lot of people back then would start with um and uh very simple things like guessing guess the number sort of game or, or enter your name and and it says hello or then we sort of progressed to doing sort of visual things and uh, drawing interesting things on the screen and all that kind of stuff and um, that was really where it where the computer interest sort of started um, because of my dad really he was into all of that stuff and he was always using it um, to to do stuff with telescopes and astronomy he was into he was he's, he is an amateur astronomer so he was oh. really into uh, using computers to plot the stars and figure out where to point his uh, his telescope and trying to automate all this stuff so he could hook the telescope up to the computer and have the computer kind of control it and all that kind of stuff. That kind of came later, the microbee. I think what maybe wasn't quite powerful enough to do that stuff. But, um, yeah, so it was it was with, with that was sort of the start of computing for me, I guess, this, uh, this weird Australian computer that 
felt like not a lot of people had. But then as I as I got older and talked to people, a lot of people were sort of have fond memories of this mo- this computer. So because a lot of people had the popular computers, which was like the the Commodore sixty four or the Amiga or um yeah the Atari, those sorts of things were the popular computers. So the microwave was like this kind of weird thing. I always wanted like the Atari or the Commodore sixty four, <laughs> but uh, we had this weird computer. But I, I'm really looking back. I had a really great time with that with that machine and um just programming it and learning a bit about it and learning about computers and yeah it was because those back in those days it was uh i, I sound like it sounds so old back in those <laughs> days but uh, that's all right I'm, I'm in my mid-30s i'm already seen back in my day so it's fine i mean computers were so simple you didn't like you started it up and it went straight into basic and you could start writing programs there was no you know multitasking word processors and browsers and all that kind of stuff and um so yeah, you could you had total control over the computer, and you could sort of make it do anything really if you if you sort of dug hard enough and learnt about the hardware and and what was available. So yeah, it was it was quite exciting to be a kid and growing up with that kind of stuff. I reckon. And how did you learn it? Because you said your dad was interested in it, mm. but did did he teach you how to program, or did he did he uh, learn from somewhere else? Yeah, he. I don't remember if he taught us specifically. He had sort of learnt and taught himself a bit as well, just from books and things. Um, uh, Turbo Pascal was another programming language that he had sort of taught himself. And I eventually migrated to Turbo Pascal as well. It was a bit more powerful than, than basic. And um, I sort of, I looked at, I guess, I guess I looked at sort of some of his programs and he had some books that I would just take and read, I guess, introduction to programming and things like that. So um, mostly it was just, uh, books that my dad had, had got or just looking at other people's programs and trying to understand and like i would I, I didn't finish a lot of things a lot of things that i got half baked you know mm-hmm. half finished or didn't get very far with things because something maybe something got maybe complicated and it was a bit beyond me at the time mm. but um it was mostly looking at yeah other people's programs and 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 these books that my dad had all just collections of books that he would get from me from his astronomy buddies or maybe from the library or something like that so and what do you mm. think was it that about programming that caught your attention? I think it was uh, just you, you could you could kind of do anything in this virtual world. You could kind of um, you could make the computer do anything within the capabilities of what it was what it could do. Mm. And I really liked that kind of I guess creative aspect of it um, of making something from scratch um, and and telling the computer to do something. And I like. I mean, I've always sort of been into electronics and sort of technical things as well. Because when I was young, I was also building uh, Dick Smith. Uh, these uh, Dick Smith was—I don't know if people know these days—but uh, Dick Smith is just sells Kogan products these days. But uh, back then, Dick Smith was a, a chain of stores started by Dick Smith, and um, y- you'd go there to buy. Uh, it was like a hobbyist electronics store, and you'd go there and buy components and soldering irons. And they had a bunch of a, a series of. Uh, books and kits for kids to learn about electronics mm. and um so i had the fun way into electronics volume one which was you had this little blue board and you'd put these screws into it and connect um connect components between the screws uh, and then fun way into electronics volume two you you sort of uh um graduated to using a soldering iron and you got a circuit board and all the components you had to put it all together and so i was doing those things sort of in parallel i guess to when i was learning about when I was learning programming and stuff. So I was kind of always interested in these technical kind of things and pull, I was always pulling things apart as well when I was a kid. Sometimes I couldn't put things back together as well. Yeah, I'm sure your parents <laughs> would have appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so 
because my dad had um, we had the garage out the back, and he had his observatory there, and uh, and he was always building things himself. So he was a tinkerer, and I guess that was where the whole thing came from for me. So aspects of creativity and tinkering and pulling things apart. Um, I guess that was what the interest was. The the tinkering thing is a big thing. I really like tinkering, and um, often I've got like I've always got like a a list of things in my in my brain that I want to do that I'll probably never finish. I'll start something and think that's really interesting, and then I'll get I'll sort of exhaust my interest in it and move on to something else. Um, I think it was the tinkering thing was the, tinkering and creativity was the main thing that I liked about computers and electronics in general. And did that influence your schooling as well and, and the subjects you chose? Oh, definitely. It definitely did. So, um, like not so much in primary school, but in high school I did uh, all, the, uh, all the math subjects, mm. physics. I didn't do chemistry. I didn't really get chemistry, but sure. I did all the advanced maths and specialist maths. And I can't remember what they were now, but uh, in year 12 and all of that. And then at the time in high school, there weren't a lot of, there were no real... Um, sort of programming subjects for someone like, I don't want to sound like a, a jerk, but like <laughs> uh, I was more advanced than what the subjects were available, that sure, were available. That you happens, know? yeah. Because like kids like me who have been doing that since since they were kids, like mm-hmm. people like me, like we've learnt a lot of things already and then you get to school and they're sort of at the, a very basic level again. And so the subject, like the IT subject in year 12, it was it was IT. It wasn't really, I wanted to do like, serious programming like um like uh, in sort of in terms of programming languages when you when you're learning you often start out with something like basic or turbo pascal at least i did and then you'd you'd go to c or c plus plus and assembly language and assembly language is like talking the language of the computer so all those other languages are kind of higher level languages and there's a translation process that um, turns your more english looking statements into code that the computer can understand mm-hmm. But assembly is very low level, and I, I wanted to learn all that stuff. I was ready, and I sort of dabbled a bit. But in year twelve, it was like the subject was it was information systems, and you had to had to write a report on a business and look at how you could use computers to improve the workflow of the business. And it was just so boring to me. It was not what I I wanted like deep technical knowledge and deep technical. Um, I wanted to learn deep technical things, but it wasn't really there at the time for 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 someone like me and I had a lot of friends who were also like that so we all did this information systems subject but uh it was kind of a it was a breeze really because it wasn't wasn't pushing us and it wasn't um what we really wanted to do anyway so because what I mean not to show your age or anything but how old were you when you went through year oh so what what so, was year 12 for you uh 97 so I'm 40 so yeah I was 18 in 1997 yeah. uh yeah so certainly at that point the idea of um there are there are a, f- a few cultural things I think that weren't probably in place in the '90s. One of them, of course, is understanding the significance of in, of, of programming and information technology in in the workplace. Like it sounds like for you, it was that basic kind of how do we integrate the idea of technology in general without really seeing the scope of it. But also the other the other thing that's developed in educational culture is is almost is um extracurriculars. So extracurriculars probably in the '90s was still mostly sport focused. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas nowadays you have programming classes. Mm. And and, and science classes and food classes. So there's a much broader variety um, of <clears throat> extracurricular hobbies that kids have the opportunity to explore. So mm. I think just, you know, you're right. The system mm. just didn't really um, accommodate for someone like yourself who had mm. the passion, who had the intelligence and, and you didn't really have much of an opportunity. They were, they couldn't cater for it as much as this, these days do. Yeah, that's right. And actually thinking back now, um, 
so I went to Melbourne High, which is quite a, um, you know, a lot of very smart people there. Mm. And uh, a lot of my friends were into all this stuff. And I'm kind of thinking back now, why didn't we organize something? We should have done something, <laughs> you know, because we would all just hang out and, and hang out in the computer labs and, and show each other stuff that we've been working on and talk programming and talk all this kind of stuff. I'm kind of surprised thinking back that, yeah, we didn't... I mean, we had an informal thing going anyway because we were just all the friends, the nerdy friends who all hung out together anyway and were into it and we were hanging out and talking about it. Um, yeah, I'm kind of surprised we didn't think to go to just sort of uh, sort of make it an actual thing, a club or something. But I guess we were doing it anyway just from hanging out. So. Yeah, and again, in the 90s, I think the idea of student-led activity it probably mm. wasn't a big idea yeah. like i i had i had too much lesser degree i had a board games club and i'm mm. still into board games these days but yeah i remember you spending um my lunch times playing trivial pursuit with my friends mm. to very frustrating degrees like we get really angry and really nervous like getting to the next period <laughs> it was exciting and like we really enjoyed it yeah. but yeah we never thought of it as a club that you could formally organize or that yeah. you invite people to mm. that was not a thing everything was teacher-led. It was the teacher's passion and yeah. they kind of created something you tagged along. So, yeah. it's, you know, growing, we grew up in a different era. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that, yeah, because I, I, yeah, now that you mentioned that, we didn't really have teachers who were super into the programming or technical or like electronics or kind of things like that. So, I guess, yeah, that's probably why it, there was no group class, you know, outside class group for that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. So, it sounds like obviously you had a fairly singular focus. Where did that take you in terms of university or at least after school? Um, uh, well, so, after after school, I went to RMIT and did um, the nerdiest of the nerdiest degrees, which was a double degree, um, <laughs> which was in computer science and engineering. So, it's like super like five-year course, uh, full-time contact hours. It was a lot of work. And I, I kind of regret it not regret it but i kind of wish i had done i really enjoyed stuff in both of those degrees but because there was so uh much work i i had to you have to you have to let things go sometimes you never couldn't spend enough time on things sometimes so mm. i i looking back i sort of think ah oh, i should have done both degrees back to back instead and then i could have spent like full time three years computer science and learned everything i wanted to learn and then four years in, in engineering and learn everything I wanted to learn there. Uh, I would probably have been at uni forever, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed like everything and there was so much I wanted to learn and do and it felt like I didn't have enough time to do it all because there was, yeah, so computer science had a lot of um, theoretical things about data structures and algorithms and operating systems and databases and I sort of got to touch on a lot of those things, but but not not go deep really into those things. And then engineering had a lot of maths, which I obviously my I obviously really enjoy maths because that's very crucial to all these things. So mm. um, the maths was really interesting. And then the the stream of uh, engineering that I did was called uh, computer systems engineering, and it was all about digital electronics. And it was all about sort of one of the subjects w was we built a CPU from scratch and um, and built it in a, in a simulator on the computer and then built it in hardware. And uh, we had to get it to run uh, like two instructions, which is like the basic kind of building block, block of, uh, of, of a program in, in a computer. So we had, to, uh, we had to build the CPU and simulate a couple of instructions. And, and I, that was just so interesting. That was a year-long subject. I really enjoyed that subject. It was so good. Um, and, and just generally in computer systems engineering, there was a lot of all that digital electronics and using oscilloscopes to, to analyze circuits and learning about, um, uh, you know, how voltage and current works and all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed all of that. But 
because of this double degree, there was a lot to do and it was sometimes you had to, felt like you had to do the minimum just to, to get the, the assignment done mm. and couldn't really go as deep as I wanted to. Do you remember, I mean, it's, it's hard to think back that far, but do you remember what your motivation was to do the double degree, you know, simultaneously? I think it was because I looked at both of those degrees and I thought, I like stuff from both of them. I just want to do all of it. So, um, and I still, I'm still kind of like that these days. Like I, my whole life I've been like that. I look at, um, that, I see something and I think that's really interesting. I want to follow that path. So I'll have like, you know, hundreds of tabs open in my, in the browser of things <laughs> I'm trying to, I want to go back to and read. Mm. Um, and I just, I never have enough time to do everything basically. So. It's because I, I guess I asked because I remember when I was in uni, my priority was to just get it done. I just wanted to get, so I, I did a medical degree and I just wanted to finish it as fast as possible. Mm. Um, I think very briefly entertained a gap year to, to just kind of take a break. Cause I, I you know, you, you work pretty hard in, in high school mm. to try and get good marks and to get into the right courses. Yep. Um, but it, it, it always dropped off my radar because my, my goal was I just need to get it done, get it, get out of here. Right. Mm. Um, so, and, and that's the thing we, I think that, Certainly, our generation. We, that's what we were taught. Like the idea of a gap year, well, at least the idea of spreading it out as much as possible, was really quite foreign. Mm. At least, at least for me, anyway. Because mm. um, my my husband, he did a three year VCE. Now, I didn't even know that was a possibility I didn't back know then. That was yeah, right. Like yeah. you just you just kind of assume it goes year eleven, year twelve. You and might then you know, uni, and, and that's then, it. Yeah. Yes, right. There's just it is just the norm. But yeah. there are people out there, given the right information or the right school or the right counselor they discover these options that allow you to go at a pace that may actually be more suited to you now not mm. everyone is the same some people are fine with just the straight line process but as you sort of looking back in hindsight you've kind of realized actually you would have appreciated being able to go beyond the scope of the bare minimum of the course offered mm. um ha- maybe perhaps had you known like had you known it was an option mm. i mean at any point do you remember considering maybe just kind of slowing things down not really, and not not kind of until um, two friends of mine spent. They did a, a a year in the U.S. at a school at a college in the U.S. And when they came back and talked about that, then I sort of thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. But by that time, I was almost it must have been fourth or fifth year, and I sort of thought, oh, I kind of just want to finish now mm. and get and get out into the real world. Um, but I did sort of think about it a little bit, thinking, yeah, it'd be great to sort of do a year somewhere else, maybe or take a break for a bit and do something else. Um, and I know people who took a break and just started working full time. And I reckon that's pretty good. Like, uh, especially if they're doing something that's kind of related to their, their course or their future sort of career. Um, like one guy that I work with right now, he was working, uh, while he was finishing his computer science degree, he was already working full time. And I, I think that really helped him to get a, a head start in the industry. So yeah, kind of, wish I had sort of done that and I sort of thought about it but I was I never I guess it's I, I never was driven enough or pushed I never pushed myself to do it and no one ever sort of said oh why don't you do this I guess and so I, I mean it's my own fault really I should have just I didn't have the drive I guess I didn't have the drive at the time to do that and I was kind of just in my own world of my own little projects and whatnot so and sometimes when you if I don't know about if this is how you are, but if you're a very task-oriented kind of person like I am, it's mm. really easy to just kind of say, oh, the, the finish line is so close. I really just want to get to that point and get it done because that, that sense of completeness actually is a really good feeling that you're mm. kind of chasing. Yeah. Um, but as you mentioned, the other half of it is awareness. It's the mm. awareness that, okay, some people did it, but by the time 
by the time you became aware of it, by the time it was brought to your attention, it was no longer the priority. So maybe, mm. you know, a year to before, like let's say you were two years into your one year into your degree and you were feeling that kind of pressure and the, 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 the density of your workload. Mm. Um, if someone had told you at that point, by the way, you can take a year off and just work in the industry for a while or mm. you can um, you can split your degree so you can focus on this one thing, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. you would have gone, actually, that's a great idea. I'd never thought to do that. Yep. Let's do that. Yep. And, and give, it means, yes, you'd be at uni for a bit longer, but you'd be able to explore it in more depth. Mm. And get get the get, get greater satisfaction out of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's that's very true because I didn't really think about these things until after my friends came back and said, "Oh, we did this year, and it was really good, and we had all these experiences." And um, yeah, so I guess maybe awareness is definitely a big part of that. I think. Yeah. I mean, so much of where people end up in terms of the career is really just about opportunity and exposure. So mm. I, I kind of wonder if you hadn't if you had a different dad if you had a dad who wasn't a tinkerer you got and i always wonder have you ever thought about where you might have ended up yeah i guess um yeah it's it's a really hard one cuz um yeah maybe it would have been something it would have been some kind of sort of intellectual pursuit i guess cuz my parents were both very into reading and sort of philosophy and um and film and all this sort of stuff um so Probably I would have been influenced by that. I mean, I was always reading as a kid as well and playing music as a kid as well. Um, so I reckon probably I would have gone into something more artsy maybe. Mm. Um, it's really hard to picture it though because I was <laughs> because my childhood was so focused on tinkering mm. and and uh, just, you know, pulling things apart and just playing with things and motors and um, mostly electronics. But yeah, yeah, it's ha- really hard to imagine that actually. <laughs> I find it really hard, yeah. So let's um let's go past uni. So you finish your degree, what happens next? Um so I I so some friends, the two friends who spent some time overseas, they had started a business in the final year of uni and I worked for them for um a couple of months after graduating. Um oh and in the final in the very at the very end of my last year, um this friend and I went to the games conference that was in in Melbourne at the time called the I think it was called AGDC, and um, we just paid full tickets. We thought we'll just pay full tickets and go see what it's all about and see what the industry is like in Australia because I didn't know anything about the industry at that time. Um, so we we did that, and then nothing really kind of came of it. And I applied to a few uh, graduate positions, but they didn't really go anywhere. And I didn't really try very hard because well, a lot of my friends were applying to to banks and to um, consulting companies, Accenture, and all these sorts of things, Telstra graduate programs. And that none of them really sounded very interesting to me. So mm. I sort of didn't, I did one or two applications and then they didn't go anywhere and I thought, oh, whatever. So then the the very next year after I graduated, I thought, uh, so I worked for a couple of months for some friends and then I thought, oh, I'm just going to go traveling for a year. So, um, so I spent sort of seven or eight months traveling around Europe, mm-hmm. um, visiting family because my dad is, uh, is Italian and my mum is from Estonia. Um, and so we've got a lot of family there because, uh, they both, my, my dad came to Australia in the seventies. So all his family is still there. All my cousins on his side are still there. Uh, my mum came in the, uh, probably the fifties, I guess, after the, after World War II, they sort of had to leave Estonia cause it was kind of all war, war torn and all that kind of thing. So, mm. um, we've still got basically all our family over there. So I went and traveled and visited relatives and, um, uh, just sort of, I, I'd, I'd started off. Um, doing this typical Aussie thing of 
working in a pub in London. But I, I only lasted a month doing that. I just I thought I came all this way. Why am I why am I like serving pints in a pub? Um, so I yeah, so I kind of quit that job because it was just kind of rubbish. So hmm. um, after that, I just basically picked places that I wanted to see, including family where places where family were, uh, and just went traveling and just uh, tried to see as much as I could. Um, I was never really into that kind of Kentucky tour thing of like, uh, you know, 20 countries in like a week or something. I wanted to spend a good amount of time everywhere. So I'd spend a couple of days or five days or whatever, try and try and get to know a place a bit. Um, yeah, those, those Kentucky tours aren't really designed for someone who's going to be there long term. Like I, mm. I, I did one myself and when I was 18 and it's really just if you have a limited amount of time. So I only mm. had about yeah two or three weeks that I could afford to do. I'm like, all right, mm. this this tour for me, I'm going to obviously get massively drunk, meet mm. new people. Yep. But the idea is that I just want to like a like a tasting menu. Like yep. I just want to get a bit of an idea about where, where what what's good and what's bad. Yep. And then maybe in a few years when I get enough money, I will go back again, but yeah. I'll actually That's concentrate. A, I like that, on, a tasting menu. That's a really good one. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But no, but I, I, again, I, considering you had you decided you wanted to have a year off and you could mm. really allow yourself the time to really appreciate, I actually agree. I think mm. it's, that's the best idea. Mm. Yeah. So so I did that. Um, I I I applied for a couple of jobs while I was over there, um, but they kind of didn't go anywhere. They wanted me to do programming tests, and I didn't have like a laptop with me or anything, mm. and I couldn't really I couldn't I couldn't do them. So um, and then there was another one that I applied for where um, I just, I didn't have the skills, I guess. I was still too kind of green, I guess. I didn't get far enough through the interview process. Well, you mean uh, at that time, what kind of jobs were you applying for? They were um, game video game industry jobs in the UK. Uh, one of them was uh, a job at um, a company who, uh, Imagination Technologies, they basically in... You know, if you've got an iPhone, you've got a chip of theirs in it. So oh. uh, I applied at that company, um, but they asked some tricky questions that I didn't really know the answers to. And <laughs> I guess I just seemed too, I was probably too green. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was mostly video game or sort of related to the, to the games industry or, yeah, that sort of thing that I was applying to. And at the time, a lot of companies in the UK were winding up and getting and closing down as well. So there was a bit of, the industry was in a bit of flux at that time as well. Why was that? I don't really know. I wasn't really aware of the business side of, the industry as much then as maybe I am a bit now because mm. um, I was just I just wanted a job as like a junior programmer I guess so I wasn't really paying attention to to all the wheelings and dealings and why companies were I guess I don't know it's always a bit um, the industry is always sort of hit, hit driven and you know if you, if you haven't got enough products out there making a lot of money um, and you can't sign any deals you kind of well and you've, you've got you know 20 employees or whatever and you've got to pay that, that those paychecks every month and um, yeah I guess that's what was happening um, not enough work I guess going around So, but at that point obviously it, it sounds like you were reading new video games was your thing was it? I was yeah I was kind of thinking that that's what it was that I wanted to do um, but when I came back to Australia I went back to work for these two friends who had started this business and um, I worked for them for a year before I sort of tried applying anywhere else and uh and it was it was really good fun actually working with them because they were friends and it was this small business there was like five of us um i'd have to answer the phone and to people who were using the software which was really cool i really enjoyed being on a small team writing software that people were using um and 
yeah, so that was a really good experience. But at the end of that sort of year, I was thinking, oh, I really want to try and get into games. So I applied to a company here in Melbourne called Blue Tongue and uh, I didn't get in. And then six months later, I applied again and uh, I did get in. And I've heard later stories about their HR and sort of incompetence and that sort of thing. So <laughs> it might have been my resume was just misplaced or whatever. Um, Blue Tongue, that sounds really familiar. Did they have any big games? in that? Uh, they, so... Uh, we did a bunch of games. So we did De Blob 1 and 2, which were two, two of the two biggest games. That's why I know Blue oh, okay. Tongue. I love De Blob. Oh, awesome. That was, <laughs> great, that was a great game. They were really kind of, I felt like, a kind of crowning glory, that, that those games, that we, those two games. They were a lot of fun to make. The team was firing on all cylinders. We, we did some awesome work. Um, really, uh, I thought we did really great work, especially on the, the Wii uh, version of those games because the De Blob 2 was on the... Xbox 360 and the PS3, mm. but on the Wii, I feel like we really pushed the hardware, and the game was just so colourful and and um, just so much going on. And I thought we did a really good job on the, on that. Um, yeah, so so I was there for six and a half years and worked on those two games. Uh, before those two, we did a game called Barnyard, which was a a kids tie-in game with a a movie that came out. Um, but uh, that even that game, we put. I feel like we put so much into it. It was a really, really good game. Um, we put everything into all of it because we were, a lot of us were very young and uh, we, you know, first job in the industry. And you sort of um, in the ga- games industry has this kind of reputation for crunch, where people get pushed to work all hours and you know, eighty hours a week and whatever. But a lot of us were doing maybe not that, but working overtime a lot just because we loved it so much. And, mm. you know, you're, if you're young and you don't have, uh, you don't have kids or, or, a, or a wife or anything like that or a husband, you know, or anything like that, you just, you're like, oh, I'm just going to stay at work. <laughs> they, they're going to buy us dinner if we stay. I get to d- work on all this interesting stuff. And you get to work on interesting technology and interesting problems, programming problems and technical challenges. And uh, you get to work with cool hardware like a dev kit, dev kit versions of the of the consoles that everyone has in their land room and that's really mm. interesting so you kind of get to see behind the curtain a bit so so what's a dev kit sorry just to, for dummies like me what does that what that stand for what does that uh, mean? so a dev kit is a development kit and it's like um it's like you've got say the xbox 360 but it's a special version of the xbox 360 with extra memory that you can use for debugging features because your your debug version of the game compared to the release version that ends up in the shops, you might have a bunch of extra stuff in memory to help you uh, build the game or diagnose what's wrong with it if something goes wrong and things like that. So um, some of them look like nothing like the kit that you have under your TV, like the, mm. um, the, the GameCube and the Wii. They were this weird metal box that looked like someone had put it together in a garage. Like it looked <laughs> noth- nothing like the actual you know, thing that you buy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so and like the the PlayStation Two was like a kind of like the it was like a giant version of the of the PS Two. It kind of sat under your desk. It was so big. It was like a giant PS Two on its side. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you got to muck around with a lot of cool hardware as well. So that was fun. Um, so going going behind the curtain because this this part this part interests me a lot. I guess how do you how do people get access to these sorts of things? Do you have to register as a as a gaming company or what? Yeah, so you'd have to be a company. You'd you'd register. Uh, usually, you would. I think you would. Um, you'd have to have a pitch. You'd have to have a, a game that you're working on, and maybe a prototype that runs on PC, and you'd show it to Nintendo, and they would say, "Oh, yeah, that's cool. We want to work with you." And we'll, we'll um, you have to buy the hardware from them. 
although you technically don't own it. You have to give it back at some point. So you're kind of renting it. Yeah, really. but you're renting it for like you pay four or five thousand dollars, maybe say, or, or it varies widely. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, you kind of are renting it essentially. Um, yeah, and uh, these days it's it's a bit easier. Back then, um, it was harder to get access to that kind of stuff. The 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 video game landscape has kind of been democratized a lot in the last maybe five or ten years certain tools have come out that have made it very easy well, not very easy it's still a lot of work but um much easier to write games you don't have to be a super brainy technical person who can read esoteric documentation to make the hardware do something just even just draw a triangle on the screen so back then you had to read this like complicated document to say how to you know set up all these registers and do this, poke these bits into memory and do this and that just to get a triangle on the screen. Mm. But these days, uh, there's a, a certain program called Unity that a lot of people use and you could, it's very easy. You just take a 3D model and bring it into Unity and it renders and it'll render on the screen and it'll render on a console if you've got the license and the, and the hardware and all that sort of stuff. So you don't have to do all that kind of low-level framework type stuff anymore yourself. You can license uh, technology to to do that for you so because of that democratization of the tools the hardware manufacturers like uh, nintendo and sony and microsoft have kind of recognized that there's a lot of people making cool games that are not um that are well they're they're part of the indie game movement i guess the indie Mm. world uh, independent developers and um they make cool games and they're not like super technical and they're not they're not all um connected up with like uh, business people and whatnot so they will often reach out to a lot of indie develop indie developers and say hey this your game looks really cool so so a lot of those so all those manufacturers now have kind of indie outreach people as well that will, that will talk to developers and say hey we've seen your game um you're doing something cool have you do you want to put it on xbox or whatever so yeah and because i'm a i'm a big nintendo person like mm-hmm. i like I, I didn't really get into it I, like i was aware of it when i was a kid like i had a snes mm. a super nintendo entertainment system for people who really or even you know dumber <laughs> than i am um back when i was a kid and mm. but i skipped over n64 and then went straight to gamecube and then from there I basically stuck with it mm-hmm. and the thing I, that about nintendo as a culture is that it is very cartoony like the idea is that mm. it's meant to be bright and cartoony and enjoyable so i imagine that something like unity like you're not trying to make um, the next Assassin's Creed. If mm. all you need is just a, a bunch of bright colors and some funny stick figures bouncing around, you could arguably that, do that and Nintendo would be like, oh, this is on brand for us. Yeah. We want this product. That's true. They do. I mean, it's not that they don't allow um, sort of the hardcore kind of games because I'm pretty sure Doom just came out last year on the Switch. So they, they definitely allow uh, things like that. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, totally. That make, I mean, Unity can really do anything. Some people sort of have this uh, impression that Unity is kind of like a um, maybe Fisher-Price or something like, a, <laughs> you know, ba- very simple, just putting building blocks together. But you can really build complicated things in Unity as well. You can build like a Gears of War as well as like a, a Mario bright and colourful game. You can, you can really run the gamut of the sort of products that you build in Unity. So... It's it's uh yeah it's very flexible. I don't. Want, this is not a Unity ad. I don't, I don't use Unity. I used to use Unity. Uh, Proudly so. sponsored by Unity. <laughs> well, we should talk about Unreal as well because Unreal is the other big tool set that um, game developers use. It's sort of Unreal and Unity are the two big ones that are kind of 
going head to head these days mm. in terms of uh, tools for for game developers. Unreal has come from the game Unreal, um, which was made by Epic, like in the late nineties, I guess. And uh, sorry, uh, dummy, what is Unreal the game? <laughs> Unreal the game is like a first person shooter. It was um, really more about uh, multiplayer. So at the time, there was there was Quake. So there was you know so mm. the, in terms of the history of first person shooters, we, it goes back to Wolfenstein, Doom, uh, Quake One, and around that time of Quake One, Epic were trying to compete and do their own thing with Unreal, and and then. Um, Apogee were doing their thing, or 3D Realms, they were doing their thing with Duke Nukem. Um, so, yeah, so Unreal did a bunch of games, Unreal games, and then they had been building this tool set internally, and then they eventually um, let people license it and then opened it out to basically anyone can use it these days. So you can just go and download it, just like Unity. Download it. Uh, it comes with a bunch of content, uh, sample projects. You can build things. But people tend to build first-person shooters with Unreal because it's, it's really been designed for that, whereas Unity is a bit more kind of... It do, it's not designed for anything. You can kind of really build anything with it. And maybe that's partly because Unreal comes with a lot of template projects that make it very easy to just uh, sort of go file, new new project, first-person shooter, and then you've got a first-person <laughs> shooter. Um, but it does a lot of the, the heavy lifting that is the stuff that um, uh, that is very difficult to do, which is... Um, the multiplayer stuff and making sure that the, the you know multiple players around the world connecting to a server they're all kept in sync, and they're not there's no cheating going on and stuff like that. So it does all that heavy stuff. And it's all built in. A lot of that stuff is not really built into Unity. So I think people who want to build a first-person shooter would probably go for Unreal. And Unity is kind of probably a bit easier as well to just tinker around and um, put anything together. And Unity has a really great um, asset store where you can go on and buy. 3D models and textures and scripts to do things for you. It's very easy to kind of just get things from the store and put it together and make a prototype of a game as well. It's very easy to prototype. I, I personally find it a lot easier to prototype in Unity than Unreal, but I kind of prefer Unreal um, just because it's it's a bit more powerful when you really need to get into it, I think. Mm. Um, but people have built great stuff in everything and anything that you can imagine, really. People build their own engines these days still, not as often, but people do it and they build amazing games. So you can really, you can use anything. And um, some people say, oh, you can't, that looks like a Unity game or that looks like a blah, blah, whatever. But I think that's all crap. It's, it's, the, <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the, it's the, you know, it's, the, it's up to the workmen to, to build something with their tools and you can build something good or something bad in anything, really, so... And so how, I mean, how accessible are we talking here? Obviously, do you need that programming training to use these programs or can literally anybody do it? I think literally anyone could do it, yeah, especially with Unity because you don't even have to write code. You can, um, I, I think, yeah, you can, so you can get these tools that let you do kind of visual scripting. They call it visual scripting. So it's kind of like um, drawing uh, on a page, drawing like boxes and saying, this box represents uh, the player movement. And then when the player hits, bumps into something, here's a line um, connecting to another box. And this box is what should happen when that, when the player bumps into something. That's very kind of crude uh, overview, but that's roughly it. Yeah. Um, And Unreal has sort of similar visual scripting thing as well. So you can, people have totally built um, successful games that just use visual scripting like that as well. And, and with the visual scripting stuff, you can still then, dive in if you need to do something a bit more complicated that maybe the visual scripting doesn't expose to you so you can 
maybe ask a programmer friend to write you some little uh, nodes for the visual scripting language that you can then hook in and just use. So you can really do a lot with it, it without really being able to program. And it's very easy to just pick up a little bit of programming anyway, especially in Unity. It uses a language called C Sharp, which is kind of forgiving and, and um, um, quite fairly easy to I think it's fairly easy to use, but maybe I'm biased because I've been programming for so long. But uh, um, yeah, I know plenty of people who, are, who don't think of themselves as programmers, but they can sort of bash out a script that does what they need to do. And sometimes the scripts are very simple things, like they just need to play a sound when some event happens. And then so they just look up how to do that. And it's just like audio.play sound. And um, that's sort of it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very easy these days to do it. And that's, that's another thing, just showing my age as well this this generation i mean we always talk i think a lot of people talk about the idea of how technology is moving much faster than it used to like it's, it's an exponential acceleration rather than sort of linear acceleration as to mm. how much we're capable of doing but the other part of it which is what you were saying before is the democratization of it and the spreading of knowledge so you know when you were learning, you would have had to learn from your dad who would learn from one book, which if he was lucky, he would get from the right library if it mm. had it. You know, there was a lot of, there was, the, the information was limited by just the logistics. Nowadays, if you just Google it or YouTube it or something, you can do almost anything. At, mm. and, and if you have enough motivation, passion, and obviously some degree of intelligence to try and understand it, yep. it, it, you can yeah you can do quite a lot which then makes it hard for the education system to be able to keep up because mm. for you know for you as a kid if you had access to this if you grew up in this day and age and you knew that you had access to all these options all these devices all these electronics school would have been unbelievably boring <laughs> for you like just unbelievably boring because you were so far ahead in obviously mm. some respects and maybe the average on others mm. but it's just it it always astounds me how um how easy it is to pick up skills based solely off interest. And so mm. this world is completely foreign to me. So I, like the idea of computer programming is fascinating mm. because I, I do love a good game and I love knowing how things work and how they got there. Um, mm. So I, I, it, it's the idea of something like Unity on Real Existing where, you know, as this is why I asked the question, arguably any kid like of reasonable intelligence mm. could easily spend their days looking looking as though they're just you know on a screen mm. but actually they're being very creative that's true yeah and uh if you go on reddit and you look at like the unity sub subreddit or the unreal i haven't really looked at the unreal one but i'm on the unity one and you just see so much stuff that people are just toying around with you never heard of any of these people they're just toying around at home there's so many people just making really cool little things and it is really that easy to just tinker around and you know you got it you, you're right you have to put the effort in it's just like learning anything, really. And I guess it is kind of similar to when I was young anyway because I was interested and, and I put the effort in to learn how things worked and whatnot, and that was what I was interested in. And these days, because of that democratization of the technology, uh, people can now... They don't have to be interested in the technical stuff. They can be interested more in the storytelling aspect and they can just download Unity for free and just start tinkering around and telling their own stories, mm. which... Which is really cool. Like, uh, yeah, it's really interesting and amazing that that's kind of where we're at these days. Um, so, uh, back to back to your work. So, you worked at Blue Tongue for six and a half yes. years. Were there any other projects you were particularly proud of? Uh, they were the three games that I worked on. Um, near the end, um, a couple, bunch of us, two of us were sent to New York to help out. Because we were owned by THQ, who was a big publisher. And um, two of us were sent to New York to help out on a project at a studio there called Homefront. And they just kind of 
they were kind of just uh, that was my first experience of sort of big triple A kind of development because the games that we were making at Blue Tongue were more kind of they didn't really have a name for it I guess double A kids and kids and family we were in the kids and family uh, kind of group within THQ we were considered kids and family because we did a lot of Nicktoons games there were two teams at Blue Tongue one of the, the other team that I wasn't wasn't on they were doing all these Nick, Nicktoons SpongeBob uh, El Tigre all these kind of kids uh, animated uh, tie-in games mm. and they were kind of cash cows at the time but they were like you know, you don't you don't go into games wanting to make those. You know, you want to go into games and make something awesome. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, but but they were, they made money those games. So, mm. um, but luckily we were the the other team, the Blob team. We did we did Barnyard to Blob One and Blob Two. They were still kind of I guess um, kids kind of games. Barnyard definitely was. Blob kind of was kind of appealed to uh, cross generational. I, I feel. Mm. Um, but then, so me and another guy, we were sent to New York to work and we kind of had this experience, this AAA experience, which was quite different. It was like working, you know, you had to ask permission to leave before 9pm or something and oh. you, had, you had to work six days a week because the game was was coming out on this date and all this marketing was lined up and like it had to, you know, billboards in Times Square, it had to come out on this date because marketing was ready to go. So mm. um, it was kind of crazy and that was kind of, an interesting experience so i liked i enjoyed that just from the the experience of it but we were only there for sort of two or three months so it's there's only so much that we could really help with but they kind of thq brought everyone in to help out on this project um so blob i'm really proud of what we did on the blob games and uh the the home front thing was just a really interesting experience as to be part of that um but then that year so that was 2011 uh then blob came out and then around July or August, THQ shut us down. Uh, and in fact, that was sort of the beginning of THQ's downward spiral. And they kind of ended up going out of business and shutting mm-hmm. down all their all their um, uh, studios or selling them and whatnot. So unfortunately, Blue Tongue was shut down. I guess they couldn't find anyone who wanted to um, take over the, the studio or anything like that. So so we all got let go in around August, I think. Um, so that was it was quite sad because we were all, we were all very close. We become good friends and kind of like family, and you know we'd worked for quite a while. Some people had been there, a lot of people had been there for longer than me as well. So um, we'd sort of had gone through a lot together, shipped a bunch of cool games, and um, yeah, and then we got shut down unfortunately. So yeah, I do want to ask more about that because the 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 concept of the Australian gaming industry is also really foreign to me. I always imagine that um, gaming development is a very international business, and Australia doesn't have isn't much of a, a player in it. But one of the things I want to say about the Blob, because again, I I love the Blob <laughs> and the Blob Two. I like this is really oh, cool. So awesome. I, like, I didn't I genuinely didn't know you were on this before I met you. So this <laughs> is really cool. Um, one of the things that I find about um, games like the Blob, and in when thinking about Australian culture, I find or more Western culture particularly, mm. Western culture is very big on defining what is a kids' game versus what is an adults' game. Mm. Now, obviously, there is a there are fairly obvious lines. Anything involving violence and gore, yes, mm. okay, that's very adult. But um, I recently went to Japan for just a, a family holiday. I was only in there for eight days, but I loved it. And one of the things about Japanese culture I find is that they, that distinction's gone. So mm. there'll be plenty of people of all ages in the Nintendo store and the Pokemon store and enjoying these things that in Australia are considered infantile or considered something for juniors. And I feel like it's a really um, unnecessary distinction because mm. loving color and loving movement mm. and action is is really good. And the, the mechanics of the blob 
particularly. So, so sorry for those who don't know. The basic idea of the Blob is that um, you, you have this character called the Blob, and the the world is sucked out of color. So there's there's little what were the military men called? Uh, inkies. The Inkies. So yeah. the Inkies were trying to turn the world black and white and monochrome. And your job was to basically run around and paint the world in different colors and you had different buildings that were different things that it was just it was just all about color and jumping mm. around so it was a platforming game and somewhat of an action game because you could i think you could shoot the inkies or you could you yeah you could kind of target them uh yeah with the with the button on the on the wii and you'd swing the, rem- the remote and you'd go shooting towards them and knock them out whatever yeah, yeah so it was it was just a, it was uh full of movement and color mm. and i loved it uh, like it was just a great game to play um but i do remember feeling a bit embarrassed playing it as how old would i have been then like i, remember I was in my 20s mm. and i thought why you know this is this is a great game why am i not allowed to enjoy this and only now am i kind of, in my 30s am i thinking actually i am allowed to enjoy this mm. so i i really find that whole um age distinction with games kind of unfair really because mm. yes again there are at the op- at the opposite ends of the spectrum yes there's clearly games that are clearly for kids and clearly for adults but mm. in the middle i think everyone should be allowed to enjoy yeah, them yeah definitely and like the like mario games are enjoyed by everyone you know and you know Splatoon is one which we feel kind of all, all of us ex Bluetong people we kind of feel took a leaf out of the the blob kind mm, of playbook yeah um, and that's enjoyed by everyone and they're just kind of bright and colourful and uh, fun and kind of exciting and they're not just yeah they're not you're right they're not just directly targeted at kids or at adults they're not at those ends of the spectrum we, yeah I definitely feel like they sort of crossed the boundaries of anyone could enjoy it like blob may not have been super challenging for someone who wanted a, a super challenging arcade platformy kind of vibe but it was definitely i think all the elements the color and the music especially which i'd love to talk about as well Hmm. um all those things together just made it a really enjoyable experience and Mm. you can just kind of like sort of just sit on your couch and tool around and enjoy the music and you know different colors with different instruments so you're kind of making your own soundtrack while you're doing that as well so yeah, it's like it could be for anyone, really. That doesn't, to me, that seems to like it's anyone can enjoy that, really. So, so what about the music? Do you oh, I love the music because uh, I, I feel like the whole of Blob was just such an uh, Australian and particularly Melbourne production because um, the music was composed in house by our composer, uh, John Guskett, and it was performed by a bunch of Melbourne bands um, uh, The Bamboos, who are a great soul band soul funk band um, Carlitos Way or a Latin band it's got like a roster of who's who in the Melbourne kind of jazz funk soul kind of scene Mm. which I guess kind of ties in with my musical interests as well so I just loved that I could like sometimes you work on a game and like when we were doing Barnyard, the, the music in that was this kind of country music and you'd get so sick of stuff. You fire up the game and you hear the same <laughs> guitars twanging away and it's like so annoying. You, just, you turn it off at some point. Inevitably with most games, and get, this always happens with sound when you're a game developer, people would play with the sound off because they, they just want to test their thing that they've done in the game and they just want to get in and test it and the music is so annoying usually. Mm-hmm. But Blob, I never felt like that. I just want to listen to the music all the time. Like we did a vinyl pressing of the soundtrack. Um, I don't know if we just on CD, but we definitely did a couple of vinyl pressings and um, yeah, it was just, it was an awesome soundtrack that brought together really amazing Melbourne musicians as well, which was really exciting to kind of be a part of that as well. So yeah. I really, yeah, I just, it was a lot of fun to make and play and listen to, you know, all of that. It was, yeah, really good time. Now I want to go back and play it. It was really exciting. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the interesting thing that, um, 
this company THQ Nordic have um, they were called uh, Nordic Games or something before that. But they bought the rights to THQ's brand name mm. and they bought the rights to to Blob. And they re-released a blob on Switch and PC, so yeah. you can get it on on multiple platforms. Now. I I was pretty sure I'd seen yeah. it recently at JB Hi-Fi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was really exciting, and it was really cool to see they uh, they still acknowledge us. They've left the intro sequence where it's got our blue tongue logo and everything. It was really just a nice touch to see that 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 you know they still recognize us because we didn't work on that. Like someone they had just hired some third party company to resurrect the source code and 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 uh, uh, and build it and for the Switch and for the PC. Um, but they and they could have just taken our name off it, I guess. But it was nice that they left us there, and and still we still get the credit. So, yeah, it's sort of it's awesome to see it getting another lease on life as well. So, mm. yeah. So the Australian gaming industry. So I, I want to come back to what happened, what your career was like after THQ mm. folded. But um, how big is it really? Uh, so it's really it's it's oh, it's fluctuated a lot over the years. So. Um, when THQ shut Blue Tongue down, around that time, a bunch of the biggest studios were all being shut down, in fact. Um, I think the dollar was getting quite strong. And in, in our case, a lot of us felt that THQ weren't very good at um, navigating the, the changing landscape of, of games and technology. Because at that time, 2011, I think 2010, was when the first iPhone came out. Or maybe the iPhone 3, I can't remember. But uh, the, the mobile devices were clearly becoming powerful and people were putting games out on them but uh a lot of a lot of studios maybe were kind of slow to adapt to that uh, and people were moving to that as their gaming platform and new people were coming to gaming through their phones as well um which was good for a lot of uh, indie developers and just bedroom programmers because they could be at the forefront of that um and a lot of the biggest studios were kind of slow to adapt to that and we all thought at the time, oh, why don't we THQ should do something? Why don't we do something? But um, you kind of you can't just go off and do something because they wouldn't have been happy with us doing <laughs> that, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of studios were closing down around that time. I think either before that or just after Chrome Studios, which was another big Australian studio. Not, I don't think they shut down completely, but they basically um, got rid of most people. Um, and. Not long before that, maybe a year or two before that, um, Melbourne House, which was probably the oldest studio in Australia, in I guess in Australia, um, they had been. I think they were bought by Chrome. They had Chrome. Melbourne House was kind of like the studio that seeded all studios in Australia. There's a really interesting graph, uh, sort of diagram that shows the um, the genesis of, of of companies in Australia. And uh, if you, they all sort of go back to Melbourne House and a few people left Melbourne House and went and started their own companies and then people left those companies, went and started other companies. It's really interesting to see how it kind of all comes back. Melbourne House is probably were around since like the 1980s or something. Mm. Um, and I work with a guy now who was there around that time. And Melbourne House did amazing games. Um, they did uh, The Hobbit on the C64 and... Oh, what was that karate one? Way of the Exploding Fist, I think, or something. Anyway, they did a bunch of really well-received games. Um, and I guess it kind of grew on the back of that, the industry. And and um, when, I, when I was finishing, maybe when I was starting uni, I think Blue Tongue must have been around. Yeah, they would have been around. Um, but they were independent at the time. Then they were bought by THQ. And there were a bunch of little independent studios who are, most of them are still around, Taurus, Talus, um, I think who else was it when I was at uni, but um, 
Yeah, so THQ bought Blue Tongue. Those other studios sort of have remained independent. Um, uh, yeah, so a lot of studios looked to the US, I guess, looked internationally for investment to keep them going because it's so hard to... to um, it's a hit-driven industry. You know, you got to put out something that sells. You can't just make some passion thing if you're trying to support a studio of 20 people or 40 people. Like at our peak, Blue Tongue was probably 100 people. So, you know, that's um, people with salaries that have to be paid and electricity bills have to be paid and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, people would look to, to the US and others and big publishers to, for investment or for to be bought out perhaps. Um, but around that time when Blue Tongue was shut down, there was a lot of turmoil sort of going on in the industry in Australia in particular. Um, a lot of studios were kind of winding up or being shut down. So it was kind of rocky around then. Um, and I guess it's, yeah, it's kind of come, it's gone up and down, up and down, just all, constantly all the time. It's, I feel like right now it's in a pretty good position. There's a lot of big, um, there's a lot of big indie studios now that have done well with their own products which is really exciting. Um, and I'm working for a big international AAA studio, which is which is awesome to see that investment happening in in, um, in Victoria or in Australia. Um, so there's, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's rocky. It's been rocky. <laughs> and, I th- and actually maybe part of it is um, government investment. Like Canada has had a lot of investment from the government. Quebec, I think, and Montreal have, have had a lot of tax um incentives incentives yeah and here we've had them and then they've been taken away and it's or or they they haven't really existed there was some some stuff uh, that the government had done called this thing uh, they had this thing called screen australia where they invested in a bunch of studios it was supposed to go for three years and be i think it was supposed to be like a self-sufficient fund or something but uh it didn't it didn't pan out like the there was a change of government and the new government cancelled it so mm. um so there's not really a lot of investment and, you know, what investment that occurs here is always in like, you know, uh, mining and all that kind of stuff. Whereas really, I mean, technology and, and IT and all that, that's that's the future. It's not even the future, it's the now and it's yeah. been the now for like the last 10 years. <laughs> but, you know, yet they keep investing in all the mining and cars and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so we haven't had the support, I guess, of government and tax relief and stuff like that so that a lot of other countries have and some of the successful countries that have been successful with growing these industries have have had a lot of that stuff as well so yeah i'm sure there's a lot a lot of different reasons why but that's my sort of reading i guess is the goal for any um game game development kind of company to be international or can a can a a purely australian company survive through local sales I think it's pretty. It'll be pretty hard to survive from local sales, and and you don't really have to because the the avenues now, like back in the day when I was working at Blue Tongue, uh, you had to put out a boxed copy of a game. You had to burn a disc, and it had to be on a shelf, mm. and you really needed um, you, you needed publishers to do that for you because it would be impossible to do that just yourself and go to JB and say, "Here's my here's my game. <laughs> put it on your shelf." Um, but, uh, and I guess if you're just trying to sell locally box copies, that'd be pretty tricky um, to sell enough to, to run your studio. But these days, maybe, actually maybe these days you could, but these days it's so easy just to sell anywhere because you can sell digitally, you can sell on the, on the iOS app store, on the Google store, on Steam, on the PC, on consoles, digital distribution is everywhere. So um, you don't have to 
sell just to Australia. And I think if you were just selling to the Australian market, it'd probably be small. The US market is huge, so it's, everyone wants to sell to that market. But you can just easily sell to any market, really, because these stores are available in most of the major territories and regions. So, mm. yeah. So, was there any other job between when THU shut down and the job you're working now? Yeah, I did a bunch of stuff. So, um, oh, too many things. Yeah. <laughs> like, after that happened, I decided to uh, not go to back to full-time work. I decided to just do contract work. So, I did some random bits and pieces. Like, um, I did uh, uh, some web stuff and some other things just to kind of get some experience with what, other industries were sort of doing because I didn't really know anything about the web or about I mean aside from being a user of the web I didn't know anything about the technologies involved mm-hmm. so it was kind of interesting to learn different things like that and ultimately it didn't interest me at all but um but you uh, wouldn't have known that had you not done it so yeah, it's fair exactly. experience yeah so I learned those things and and that knowledge is has been useful since then anyway so I'm glad I did those projects mm. um so I did a bunch of different projects I um what did i do yeah so i took uh i spent actually not work related but i went to new york um in about 2013 or 2012 for um about a month and a half to do a jazz summer program at uh, nyu so that's the other thing that we haven't really talked a lot about but yeah uh, we we will get to it (laughs) yeah so i so i because i had the flexibility of not of just doing contract work and not having full time i thought i want to do this summer course Mm. Um, so I did, I did that and that was awesome. Uh, came back, uh, after that, I then worked at Tantalus, which was another m- local studio. Um, I worked, they mostly do a lot of port work. So taking old games, uh, or games that are on certain platforms and porting them to other, pla- taking them and ranking them run on other platforms. Mm-hmm. So there, while there I worked on, um, Deus Ex. Machina. No? Deus Ex Human Revolution. Okay. Which was on PC and Xbox and uh, PS3, and we we did that for the Wii U, so we converted that to run on the Wii U, and that was also a kind of a, I guess, getting to do a little bit of AAA, which was exciting because um, it's like a massive project. It was a very popular game, um, and the scale of the project was sort of um, bigger than anything that I'd worked on at Blue Tongue, so that was again a chance to kind of get up close to the AAA thing because there hasn't been AAA really in Australia for mu- not much at all and AAA is like the big blockbuster games like the Gears of War or the even Mario is AAA like the games with the massive budgets the big teams the big scope um, the big advertising marketing budgets all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, so we were just taking an existing game and making it run on a new platform so we weren't really we weren't creating the game from scratch. It already existed. Mm. But it was still cool to be kind of a part of that kind of um, that industry, which was not something that I'd done a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so that was a year, that project. And then I, uh, I was just a contractor there and I, I thought I've had enough. I want to go move on do something else. So then I started uh, my own company with a couple of friends from there and who were also at Blue Tongue. And um, uh, the, long, the long story short is that really I'm the only one doing anything with the company. Um, <laughs> they, they're all good friends still, but uh, they all, we all, it, it was clear we all had different uh, goals and desires, I guess. And, uh, and they had to go and get full-time jobs for various reasons. And I had a bit more flexibility because of some savings and things to kind of take my time and cho- choose a bit with projects I wanted to do. So, mm. um, so in the end, I just did a bunch of contracting over... I guess six or seven years 
um, for lots of different things, um, game and non-game projects, so uh, including tools. So I worked, I did a bunch of work for about almost a year for Autodesk, who were trying to kind of compete against Unreal and Unity. They had their own engine, and so I, I did uh, remote contract work. So they're based in the US, and I, I worked remotely with people there, um, and that was a really good experience, just working on a big project uh, remotely and being exposed to how that works because I've mostly worked with people, you know, in the same room, but now these people are all in different time zones and we're all um, trying to work on the same thing and the project was so big and so communication was really crucial, uh, good communication was crucial. So it was a really good learning experience, learning about working remote and um, on a big project. So that was really, that was a lot of, that was, that was fun, that project. Um, I did some, I did a switch port of a game called Framed, which was a mobile puzzle game. Um, a friend that I had met at Talos was had, had made this game, um, and they did Framed and Framed One on Framed One and Framed Two on mobile, and that was really successful. And they wanted to bring it to consoles, mm-hmm. so they hired me to do the Switch version of that. Um, so that was that was really exciting as well to work on that. Um, I got got the Switch hardware and got to just do all that, basically kind of own the Switch version of the of the game. So that was just me doing it all on my own, which was um, was just a lot of fun to take charge of it and do have to do everything. Mm. Um, yeah, lots of different random things like uh, count projects for ca- AR projects for councils. I did an AR project for Moreland City Council. Um, I did a, a a thing for the museum. They've got this. Uh, uh, this thing for teaching kids about road safety. So I uh, I was brought on to kind of uh, do a port of that system to iPads because they wanted like a, a mobile version that they could take around to schools out in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of little interactive experiences. So I did all the things I was doing were either games or kind of interactive um, experiences, I guess, somehow tangentially related to games. Because um, that was all, uh, that's sort of what I, I've enjoyed doing over my career, I guess, interactive experiences things that are interactive in some way think where you know you 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 do something and something interesting happens on the screen not just pure kind of apps yeah um yeah and so where are you now so last year i decided uh i wanted a bit of a change so um i'm now at sledgehammer games which is a studio that's part of activision and working on call of duty um and so Sledgehammer last year, there was a small team, um, most of whom I knew, and they'd been working sort of under the radar, I guess, as a kind of a skunk works kind of thing, just a remote team. Um, but last year, they decided to grow that team. Sledgehammer is based in Foster City in the US, and they had decided um, they wanted to expand the Melbourne team and make it an officially uh, make it an official studio. So last year, they've basically started going on this huge hiring spree, um, and. And I started because I, I knew a bunch of fr- people there and I was like, hey, I think I want to do something different. I'm a bit sick of contracting. Uh, the contracting world was kind of a bit frustrating because the money can be good, but then there can be downtime in between projects and, mm. and there's no money coming in. And then the big paying project has to make you, the money has to make you last, has to last over that period where you don't have work coming in. So yeah, um, it was just a bit frustrating and i want to save for a house and stuff like that and it's sure. hard to build up savings and things so mm. i wanted something a bit more regular and i wanted to work with people again you know in a team and this opportunity was just really good because it's um big projects triple a scale um and 
you know, like last year, just after I started the team who in Melbourne were working on the um, Modern Warfare game that just came out last year. And within like, a, within like days of the game coming out, millions of people are playing the game and like just doing contracting and whatnot, whatnot I, I would never be exposed to something like that. I'd never make, mm. I would never be working on something where that many people are playing. And w- if, it's, if a game is played by that many people, they're going to find bugs. So it's a huge engineering effort and it's a really interesting engineering effort because with that many people, they find all the weird bugs and the things that you never, never sort of thought of. <coughs> and you just like, it's super challenging to try and reproduce those bugs and fix them and, and you want to fix them because it might be a bug that happens one in a hundred in your office, but then when there's like millions of people playing, it's going to, it shows up way more frequently. Um, so some, so that can be really interesting, really challenging um, in terms of the scale of the projects and the amount of data that we have to deal with to build these games. So I just wanted to get involved in that. And this is actual AAA. So finally I've made it to AAA because yeah. it hasn't really been in Australia so much. Um, yeah, there's been a little bit of AAA over the years, but not, yeah, not at this scale. And, and Sledgehammer are planning on growing to a big team and really being like a, the poster child, I guess, for AAA in, in Australia. Mm. And there are teams, indie teams doing big games that, fairly big games that are really on the world's um, stage as well. Um, a bunch of different studios have done amazing things, but um, this is at another, feels like it's at another level entirely because Call of Duty is like massive, like it's mm. huge. Um, so it's really exciting to be part of it. I actually don't really play much Call of Duty at all. <laughs> I just like the more the engineering challenge yeah. and, the, and the software challenge, so... I'm embarrassed to say I haven't played Call of Duty in about ten years. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. You're probably, it's it's like um it's like having to eat, eat a peanut butter sandwich every day. At some point, you know, it's fine. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to be sick of it if you have to deal with it every day. Yeah, that's right. Um, I want to I want to I do want to talk about the music theme because yeah. I I find the pairing of of those two intros really interesting. But just for anyone who was really into the programming stuff, I want to kind of put a close loop on mm. it. What for any budding or aspiring developers out there in Australia, particularly? Mm. Do you have any advice? I would say be interested in things. Don't just, you know, like if something goes wrong with your computer, like figure it out. Don't just like go, oh yeah, whatever. Reinstall Windows or whatever. You know, like I think really being uh, being good at uh, programming at sort of with the sort of deep technical knowledge and te- technical interest that I personally have, I think you have to just be interested in pulling things apart and interested in just anything like that, like pulling anything apart. But with software, I guess, like just interested in digging in and trying to understand why a thing is a certain way. And I guess the mechanics of getting to that would be um, learning some programming and in any language really, but learning how a computer works, learning how, you know, you can program at a very high level in say JavaScript and it kind of, it's like working in a not, you know, kind of a, you're working in what's called a virtual machine and you're kind of not really exposed to the limits of the computer. You kind of can pretend there's unlimited memory when you're working in something like JavaScript. But if you're writing sort of to the metal in, say, a language like C or C++, you have to think about the memory. You have to think about how much memory. You can't just go, oh, I'm going to use 500 gigabytes of memory to store this thing in and do whatever because you don't have that much. You've only got 8 gigabytes or whatever. So, um, you know, your code is running on a real machine, it's running on a CPU that can execute at a specific speed. So you can't just do something crazy because it might run too slow. So if you want to get into that sort of thing, I reckon 
um, learn about how a computer works, learn about the cache, learn about the CPU, learn about memory, how memory works. And I reckon do a computer science degree, not not uh, this is might be contentious, but don't mm. don't do a games degree. And, and <laughs> I have a friend who teaches in a games degree. <laughs> um, but uh, no, he knows how I feel. <laughs> uh, do a computer science degree because that gives you the grounding. And you could take electives, like RMIT has electives where you can do ga- some game subjects as well and graphics subjects and learn mm. about graphics and games. But I reckon do, yeah, computer science or some kind of engineering. Pro- computer science is good because you get exposed to algorithms and how algorithms work and how the computer works, how the hardware works. And from a job perspective, do you think it's, I mean, in the, obviously the landscape changes, so it's hard to know, to predict what's going to happen over the next 5, 10, 15 mm. years. But do you think it's necessary that people who want to get into game development particularly have to leave Australia? I don't think so. Um, it It is hard, but if you have that kind of deeper knowledge about how computers work, you would be valuable at, you know, at any company here in Australia doing games because... Like a lot of, you know, if you use Unity, a lot of people that come out of the games degrees just know how to use Unity and they're kind of an all-rounder. They're not really a computer science person. And they it would be harder for them to be hired by, say, Sledgehammer. The other company here that's pretty big is EA, They uh, Fire Monkeys. They are always looking for C and C++ programmers, not so much the Unity programmers. They want people who know how to do things optimally. Um, but if you have those skills and you don't get a job at Sledgehammer or Fire Monkeys you would still be valuable to someone doing Unity. And you, and if you've got those skills, you'd, you'd more easily learn how Unity works and be able to program in Unity and be valuable to a studio that's just doing games in Unity. So those skills are still useful. You don't have to do a games degree and learn how to use Unity. Um, I, I think it's worth being, I guess, a computer science person. That That is if you want to be a programmer. Like some people just want to be a game developer, which means they maybe don't need to learn programming they can just you know make it themselves or whatever but i think if you want to be a programmer it's valuable to do computer science learn how things work um, and then you'll be valuable to a, a, a gamut of of companies that are out there so yeah. awesome all right so for any of you who are just listening about the computer programming stuff you can stop listening now <laughs> um no no joking please stick around um let's talk about your music career yeah so when did that start so that started when when I was in school as well. Uh, my mum played piano and we had a piano at home and uh, she played classical music and um, rag, some ragtime as well, Scott Joplin, stuff like that. And so I guess, I don't know if she, I guess she said, oh, do you want to learn piano? And I guess I said, okay. <laughs> um, so she put me in lessons and uh, I guess I enjoyed it because I did it up until I was in year 10 um and i did uh, exams ameb exams up to grade six uh, ameb and i kind of stopped because at grade six they required you to do the first grade theory and i did that but i didn't like that exam at all because <laughs> you had to remember too much stuff and i actually <laughs> cheated on that exam as well <laughs> i had a little pencil case and a ruler and you had to i wrote down some answer on there oh classic cheating methods yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> i like so it I just sort of carefully like looking at it yeah <laughs> Um, so I stopped after that and I was in year 10 and I was sort of thinking, oh, I don't, I'm not really enjoying it as much anymore. But while I was, what I would do with my teacher was, um, after the exams, we would do some fun kind of thing. So like one time I learned the Muppet, we did the Muppet theme song. So I learned uh, how to play the Muppet theme song. Um, bits of it are still in my head. I try and pull it out, but I can't, it's, it's just... <laughs> 
the finger movement is kind of half in there, but I can't quite get it. I got to <laughs> learn that again because that's a fun song. It is. Um, and then one, a few times we did some jazz stuff, and it wasn't um, very complicated. It wasn't um, really any improvisation. It was all written uh, written out already in sheet music. Um, so that was kind of where I'd sort of gotten exposed a little bit to jazz. And my dad would listen to jazz as well. He had lots of records, so he was always listening to jazz. And so when I got to later high school, I started listening as well to jazz. At the start of high school, I was kind of listening to what everyone else was listening to. I went to the big day out, all that kind of stuff, you know, so because mm. um, you get influenced by the people that you're around and what, you know, what they're listening to. But Indeed. then I sort of started finding what I was really more deeply interested in, I guess, which mm-hmm. was, which was, I found was jazz. Um, so for a long time, I was just listening, I guess, until I was maybe 24. 25 or so I was just listening to jazz and I'd go out to gigs a lot and um, just follow the scene the jazz scene in Melbourne and see and know the bands and go out and see gigs and stuff and listening and then but at this sort of at the same time my my brother uh, plays trumpet and he is also a programmer he did software engineering as well but he he plays um, every second night he's doing gigs so he's he's I call myself a semi-professional he's like practically full-time programmer and full-time musician oh, crazy. i don't know how he does it yeah but, uh, he's always tired but, um, <laughs> yeah so he was doing that he did music about the same time he learned piano and then he took up the trumpet in sort of year 10 or so maybe um and was doing trumpet all throughout uni and and just got involved in the scene yeah, in particular latin music and big bands in in melbourne and i sort of had seen watched him do all this and i got to sort of around 25 and i thought i really i want to get back into piano and I want to play in a band with my brother. Mm. That was kind of my driving uh, motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I went. I did a CAE course with um, a guy called Steve Sedegreen, who's the Sedegreen family is kind of jazz royalty in Australia. So there's Steve's dad Bob, who's who's been around for forever. Steve is. They're both, and they're both um, big educators. So they're always teaching master classes and whatnot so so steve was running a and then there's a, a brother mel Sedigreen. Uh so steve and bob play piano um steve was running a, 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 a what's it called i've lost my train of thought like a short course a short or, course yeah. sorry yes uh a cie course yeah um and there were two of them it was like a beginners in advance so i did that course and it was held at um the dizzy's jazz club which steve used to run which used to be in uh in richmond opposite uh, the station so it was in the jazz club. So you'd go there once a week and have a lesson with like, uh, there's probably like 12 people in the class. Uh, it was good, but um, not kind of focused enough on just me, I guess. Like it was because there was a whole class, of, sure. you know, too many people. Hmm. And there's one piano. So everyone would get up and have a go and do something. And he would talk about it, something. So after those two classes, I called him and I said, oh, do you do private lessons? And he said, oh, I'm thinking of doing this new thing where I have a small group of four people. Um, why don't you? Why don't we do one private lesson and then you can come and do this um, small group thing? So I did the one private lesson and then uh, started doing these small group classes. Uh, there was so there was four of us in total, and the the three others we've all become good friends, and we're all uh, quite diverse as well. They're from all over the place. One one of them, the he's a, the guy is is uh, probably in his late sixties now. One of them is a guy more my age. Um, the other one is a uh, a woman who um she was an executive at ford or something like and mm-hmm. wanted to do music so we're kind of all from all over the place um 
And so we, we did these classes and they were at a piano store in South Melbourne. Um, and I did that for quite a few years before I felt like I could play in public, I guess. Sure. Uh, and I felt like I'd sort of um, lost, forgotten everything. Like when I, I thought I, I, I don't... I, I started and I was like, I feel like I've forgotten everything before, but it sort of slowly kind of came back bits and pieces. Mm. Um, and so the so the guy, the older guy in our class, he had been playing already quite a lot. I don't know why he was doing lessons, but oh well, <laughs> he was enjoying it. Um, but he used to do a few gigs at restaurants and things, and he would run a jam around town occasionally as well. So at this one venue in uh, in South Melbourne that he had a gig on a Saturday night and he would leave all his gear there and Sunday afternoon he'd run this Sunday afternoon jam. So he was always trying to convince me to come along to this jam but I was too scared to play in front of people. Hmm. But eventually I started going and um, and it was it was you know it was nerve wracking, but uh, it was good. It was good fun. I met so many people that I'm still friends with today in music um through this sunday jam and that the jam that jam has kind of moved around a lot between different venues because restaurants close and bars close and they try and find somewhere else and it just kind of moves around sure um but there was that jam and a friday jam that i used to go to and just i just met heaps of people and that kind of um ended up becoming the people that i met through there um a few of us started a band together and we did um sort of bars and uh, venues and whatnot gigs um paid gigs um so that's why i say i'm semi-professional because i get paid for the gigs but it's not my not my day job sure um but i I really feel that um i'm trying to say no to the unpaid gigs these days because there's a lot of unpaid gigs and it's kind of crap basically Mm. like it brings it down for everyone there are people who do this full-time and if you take on the unpaid gigs then like People don't want to pay. They'll, someone else will do it for free. So we don't, so the venue thinks they don't have to pay, and people who are trying to do it full time, they just they can't get paid. So, um, but there, at the start, I was doing a lot of those sorts of things. I guess just as a for exposure, I guess, mm-hmm. or to just try and play out in public because it's very different playing for yourself or even at a jam versus playing out in public at a venue. Even if people are not listening at a restaurant, you still. You can't just stop halfway and go. Oh no, this is all wrong. Let's start again. <laughs> that has ha- that has happened, but it's uh, it's kind of crappy when that happens. Mm. Um, so I basically just more and more playing and just meeting people through going to jams and going to um, going to just meeting people through the jams mainly. That was a thing actually, mm-hmm. and put bands together through that. And uh, yeah, and so at the moment um, I haven't been playing a lot for the last six months, um, but. There was a band, there is a band that I'm sort of, it's someone else's band, uh, this bass player, Tony King, and we play all these original tunes and they're really, really nice. Um, sort of, uh, they've got a kind of blue note, set, uh, 60s kind of um, vibe, which um, if if you don't know what, what that's all about. Um, which I don't. It's <laughs> kind of hard to explain, but basically it's, um, jazz is such a wide uh, sphere like there's so many different types of jazz you know there's like you know bebop and hard bop and there's um modern jazz whatever that is there's you know free jazz there's so many different things i guess a lot of people think jazz is just random but hmm. it's not really random it's playing within uh the structure of a song so you've got the song and you might play the melody to start with and then you'll just you'll improvise and hopefully with your improvisation you're trying to tell a story and trying to play something melodic not just sort of random notes you know, you're mm. trying to play, you're trying to make something that sounds 
composed. Some people say composed like on the spot is, is what improvisation is. So, yeah, so this band that I'm really enjoying at the moment, although we haven't done a gig in about eight months um, for various reasons, but um, uh, it's it's uh, this sort of Blue Note vibe. And Blue Note was sort of this one of the seminal record labels in the in 50s and maybe 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, they they recorded any anyone who's anyone in jazz basically. Um, Herbie Hancock is a massive, massively well known even outside of jazz um, pianist, and he was uh, on the Herbie on the um, Blue Note label. Miles Davis is another big name, mm. um, and there's a certain sound that is the Blue Note sound, which is kind of um, usually there's a couple of horns um, and a rhythm and a rhythm section. So the rhythm section is piano, bass, and drums, and the horns might be trombone and saxophone and trumpet so in this band we have trombone and saxophone and and the, the rhythm section and it's the songs are just they have a catchy melody and they, they swing really hard and um i don't know how to explain what's what swing is that's a really yeah. hard thing but there's like a groove there's just it there's a pulse and a, and a groove and and everyone's just really locked in together and it just you want to tap your foot to it. That's kind of what Blue Note music, Blue Note is, I reckon. Sure. And a lot of it is kind of also, um, I guess. Oh, it actually, it, uh, it, yeah. It's just anything. Oh, what am I saying here? Kind of, I kind of have lost it. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just really great music. The Blue Note period was a really great period in jazz. I mean, there's great music throughout the whole history of jazz, really. Um, but this band for me kind of has this Blue Note vibe. And I really enjoy playing uh, playing with this band. So hopefully we can get some gigs together again soon. But the bass player has uh, had some injuries, so we haven't been able to do anything in a while. Mm. So apart from that, um, lately I haven't done a lot because with with gigs, if you if you're going to put something together of your own, you got to go hustle for venues to get gigs. And I I never really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah. I just want to be called for a gig. I don't want to have yeah. to like go to venues and say, hey, here's, a, here's some recordings. Here's thing. I've got this thing. I've got this project. I don't really have pro, like projects, I guess. Um, I, I guess I feel actually with that, I don't, um, I don't feel like I've gotten to the point with my own music where I'm ready to put together a project. Mm. So maybe in the future, I'll, I, I don't compose at myself so maybe at some point i'll start doing that and have some original music that i might want to put on as a show or something um but i haven't i feel like i haven't gotten to that stage in my own playing yet um yeah so that's kind of where i guess i'm at with the music so it's just been a long journey of just learning and i'm still learning and still playing at just for myself at the moment at home um yeah it's it's uh, uh, one of the things I find about creative pursuits of any sort, whether we're talking about writing or acting or music or whichever avenue you choose, is that there is the business element of it that a lot of people forget. You know, yeah. oftentimes when you enter into a creative pursuit, it is because of the love of it. Like whether it is you learned it at school or, mm. or yeah, you're exposed to it because of your family. Mm. You you don't you don't know you don't get taught about the 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 hard yards you have to take and you know every job has some element of it that you don't necessarily like that's a given there is no such thing as a perfect mm. job out there but i find particularly with again creative pursuits it is um it is a lot harder there is less of a a clear structure or a process to get you to success um, and one of the one of the common themes that I, I come across when it comes to creative pursuits is the idea of quitting your day job 
right? So mm. they, they all tell you, if you want to do it right, you have to quit your day job and commit to it entirely. But that, uh, mm. I think, I, was, I can't remember who I was discussing it with. I think I don't think it was on air, but it, when you have a regular income, it's really hard to let go of it, yeah. to be able to say, <laughs> oh, I'm going to ditch this regular income and the security yeah. and all the goals that this achieves in order to pursue this uncertain pursuit. As, and so as much as you might love it, it, it is. There are other considerations that come into play. Yeah. Um. Other other things you built into your life that aren't about the the music anymore. So I can completely understand why yeah. the yeah having to seek out the venues is really difficult. But then I think, um, popular opinion would say that the way to get yourself motivated to that is to give yourself no choice. Yeah. To be able true. to say you cannot possibly survive if you don't do it. Yeah. And it's that it's that drive and that incentive for you. Whereas right now you're kind of like, well, if I don't go then I'm still earning money. I'm still eating. I've still got my house. Like, yeah, I definitely, I don't really yeah. need to. Yeah, no, I totally agree because I don't have that impetus to push me to do it. I, yeah, you're right. I have a day job and I love my day job as well. Mm, That's which the other helps. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a really tricky one. I, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I need to push myself. Actually, when after Blue Tongue, I did try and make a bit of an effort. Like I set up, a, I registered my name as a domain and I set up a music kind of website and printed myself business cards and all this mm. kind of stuff. So I was kind of, at that point, I was thinking, oh, well now I've, you know, I don't have a job at the moment. I should try and do this a bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess other jobs came up and it fell by the wayside. But uh, but when I did that uh, jazz course in New York, that was, the, that was one of the few times where I've been able to focus 100% of my time for four weeks was, was the course on just music and and I learned so much and I got so much better just from doing that. So sometimes I think I should take a holiday every now and again from work and just focus on music, nothing but music, just to play and practice and gig and whatnot, all that kind of stuff. And that, that begs the question, Do you, can you think of uh, any point in your life or in your career where you would... Um, actually, yeah, give more focus to music, right? Because right now, although yes, you are being paid and you are semi-professional, mm. it's you're, it's still being treated much like a hobby. Like yeah. you, you, you know, you're you're getting paid to do something you enjoy on the side, mm. but you have the luxury of being able to pick and choose when, you, to some degree, yep. be able to pick and choose when and when you do it. So, is there something that would drive you to say, actually, I'm going to give my commit myself full time, or at least more so, mm. um, to music? I think I think if I could. If, if I knew that I had enough money to kind of cover expenses, maybe mm. then I would do it. I think that's the big thing because, you know, you know, you get older and you start thinking about the future and you start thinking about, you know, what am I going to do when I retire? How am I going to, how am I going to pay a mortgage if I've got one or whatever, all those kind of boring things. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think if I had just had like, you know, enough money to not have to worry about stuff, I'd, maybe then I would go go into it sort of, Full time, maybe. Mm. Yeah, but then I guess I wouldn't have anything to push me to do it because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have sort of the financial drive to push me to make money with gigs because I've got the money to to survive. Yeah. But then the flip side is gigs never make much money anyway. So mm. you, you get like maybe a hundred dollars of I don't know, you know, unless you do, you know, if you're playing at a restaurant, unless you're doing like weddings and that sort of stuff. But even, but then you don't really get to play necessarily the music that you want to play mm -hmm. so yeah it's really tricky like yeah it's very hard I, I guess it depends on what you want out of the career like i do admire people who are able to dedicate their entire lives to a creative pursuit but i think 
I think it's one of those things you have to start from a very early age and essentially acclimatize yourself to the idea of not having money. Yeah. <laughs> because if you get older to a point where you, you, you're just used to having money mm. and the idea of taking that risk and losing all these things becomes too hard. Mm. Um, and I respect, like, I, I understand, like, I, I understand both sides mm. of it. Um, uh, yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an aspiring screenwriter. Um, and it's, um, it's it's not something I'd, I think I'd ever pursue full time just because the idea of it terrifies me. Yep. Um, yeah. I enjoy it and I like the process of it and, and it, it brings me joy. But to actually sort of give up other things in order to say, all right, I'm going to go into this career that is very uncertain, that no matter how good you are, you could mm. be, people can say, oh, your scripts are great, your scripts are great. But if it's just not the right environment, not like the, the TV culture isn't quite right mm. or people just aren't buying at that moment and all of a sudden your opportunities are gone. So yeah. it's not... It's not merit-based, whereas yeah. a lot of, uh, the, the, you know, non-creative pursuits are generally merit-based plus or minus opportunity plus yeah. or minus, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, exposure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Create, cre- the creative pursuits, I don't know. I don't know how people do it. Mm. It's really interesting, actually, because I see, uh, because I'm involved in, you know, I see the game side and I see the music side and the, the uni degrees are kind of similar. They're both pushing out a lot of people who have these grand creative ideas, but then there's no jobs for them quite mm. often because people doing the music courses, they often just become teachers. Yes. There's not enough gigs really. And people doing the games courses, they kind of come out thinking that the, they, they think they're going to make their own games and make maybe make money and make some passion project, but they don't really have a lot of the business training and they don't, and they don't, they don't make money and they end up just going to work for some other companies. So it's just, it's hard on both, both sides because those both, both those degrees I think are, Trying to uh, training people to be creative, which is great, but how are they going to survive out in the world? I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So, how do you balance it? How do you balance the two careers? I guess uh, I try and make time for the music, uh, and often I just play for myself. Um, uh, if I'm just if I had a hard day or something, I just I like to just unwind at the piano. Mm. Um, but then if it's gigs, I guess I don't have. I'm not overloaded with gigs like my brother. If I if I were, I would. I don't. I don't think I would want to be that overloaded. Mm. I would be happy with like uh, one or two gigs a week that were just regular, you know. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, it's like once a month or less. Um, so I guess the balance is not that difficult, and it's more just trying to find the time. Like I like to just sit down and play, but also I want to work on certain things because you never know at all. There's always stuff to learn, mm. and so uh, I guess sometimes I. I get sidetracked by just sitting down and enjoying the playing, but it really sometimes I feel I should focus a bit more and, and work on some aspect of my playing that I want to want to improve or whatever. But usually I just end up just playing because it's just it's fun as well to play. So And I guess it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Yeah. If you're trying to make a career, then obviously, you know, just playing, just noodling around on the piano probably isn't worth your time. It's, mm. it's not, not particularly productive. But if you're doing it for the love of it, it's like any hobby. You That's know? Right. Not not everything necessarily has to produce an income or yeah. produce anything sometimes just doing it for the love of it is perfectly fine mm. you know yep. you don't you wouldn't make that argument for someone who's trying to play golf you don't say, yeah. say oh <laughs> you're playing golf you really should make money from playing that yeah, golf like why true. aren't you so yeah, yeah. Mm. That's very true. so for anyone who wants to discover jazz or particularly blue note jazz do you have any recommendations about clubs or uh, bands that they should be following um clubs in melbourne there's some great clubs there's um the paris cat is a really great club that's usually where i've been playing with this band um and where's that that is in goldie place in the city Mm -hmm. uh, sort of around the corner from hardware lane 
Mm-hmm. Um, there is Bennett's Lane, which has kind of uh, been actually sorry, it's not called Bennett's Lane anymore. It, it was called Bennett's Lane when it was in Bennett's Lane in the city. Mm. It's called the Jazz Lab now because they closed down uh, and they moved it to Brunswick. I don't remember the address, but if you look up the Jazz Lab, they have they're sort of often at the forefront of really interesting jazz. I feel like the Paris Cat is kind of more accessible. Um, people will go there for like a date night or whatever. Like it's a good place to go just to hear like a, maybe a vocalist or something that's just easy to um, get into. Whereas Bennett's Lane can be a bit more challenging sometimes. Mm-hmm. The, um, a bit more, you kind of have to listen with intent a bit more, I guess. Mm. Uh, it's all good music. Um, it just depends on kind of what you want. Um, and then just there's loads of venues um, that just have things on. There's Open Studio in Northcote and 303, Bar 303, which always have gigs on different different types of things, not just jazz, so, uh, sort of soul or, um, or funk and that kind of stuff as well, which is kind of all interrelated, I guess. Um, yeah, what else? Those are the main... Oh, the Uptown Jazz Cafe in, um, in, in Fitzroy is a real uh, muse, muso kind of hangout, actually. There's always a lot of musos there. Um, but they're all... Yeah, they're all... Those are all great venues to go and see music. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks, Sam. That was actually really fascinating on a number of levels. So I appreciate oh, you coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure you follow us on social media and check out the website uh, for more details. And uh, please uh, keep an eye out for the next episode. Remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet. Oh.